The Knowledge Experience and Its Relationships by John Dewey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Knowledge Experience and Its Relationships by John Dewey. Professor Woodbridge's recent article in this journal, footnote, volume 2, number 21, page 573, end footnote, raises clearly and effectively certain questions involved in the conception of philosophy and its problems, which, in my mind, associate themselves with the ideas set forth in the first chapter of Studies in Logical Theory. At all events, I am going to make some points in his article an excuse for reverting to the position there taken, viz. that the characteristic problem of philosophy is the relationships to one another borne by certain typical functions or modes of experience, e.g., the practical, cognitional, aesthetic, etc. Objectively put, philosophy arises because the reals, which are the distinctively appropriate subject matters of these different types, get into conflict with one another a conflict so thorough as to leave us no choice except a to doubt all b somewhat arbitrarily to select one as the standard and norm for valuing the others or c to effect a harmonization of their respective claims through a more thorough consideration of their respective historic and working positions and relationships footnote one of the many merits of Bradley's appearance and reality is the way in which it thrusts this conception virtually, if not intentionally, to the foreground. It leaves but three alternatives. To accept Bradley's result. To explain away satisfactorily the seeming discrepancies of the various functions. Or to find another method and scheme of harmonization than his. End footnote. Woodbridge's article presents a special case of the general problem viz how to justify the peculiar claims of knowledge to provide a valid account of other modes of experience if reality as true is but one sort of reality or one sort of experience how can it possibly be affirmed that the nature of reality is most fittingly defined when we have that sort when that is reality is experienced as true page 574 and again we attempt to give an account of experience which will commend itself to thought how can we succeed if we raise the suspicion that any account for thought must necessarily be not only partial and inadequate, but radically different from what experience is? Page 576. 1. Certainly, any empirical statement which ends up in the implication that the knowledge account is radically different from what experience is has committed suicide. But when we say with Woodbridge, 1 that the real is simply that which is experienced and as it is experienced, page 573, and two, that there are many sorts of experience of which the cognitive sort is only one, page 576, we seem to be committed to the conviction that the knowledge experience is of things which, in some sense, are different from what the things of other experiences were, and from what they would continue to be in the future, were it not for an intervening knowledge experience. As I interpret the history of thought, it is precisely the fact that the knowledge account is different from what the things of other experiences are, contemporaneously with those experiences, 
which has been the main motivation of the transcendental, non-empirical conception of knowledge. Because the things of experience are so many different things, it has been thought that reality, to be one, single and comprehensive, must be exclusively identifiable with the content of the perfected knowledge account. And this is then set over against the things of other experiences, of all experience qua experience, as the absolute against the phenomenal, the really real against the world of appearances. Hence the attacks made by the transcendentalists upon recent empiricisms, however denominated, because they deny exclusive or isolated jurisdiction to the knowledge function. Hence also the charges by the empiricists upon the transcendent concept of knowledge, claiming that the isolation in which knowledge is placed leaves it an arbitrary, brute dictum, nonetheless arbitrary and even solipsistic because referred to a knower termed absolute, or else a subjectivistic aesthetic indulgence, since such isolation excludes verification in all the senses of verification hitherto employed by man. When, therefore, we have, as in Professor Woodbridge's account, a transcendence notion of knowledge put forth with an empiristic motivation and basis, we have the problem in an especially interesting form. How can the knowledge experience connect with other experiences in such a way as not to justify itself at their expense? How can, at one and the same time, knowledge be transcendent of other experiences and the things of other experiences be real? 2. What concretely is the knowledge experience? Three sets of facts are designated by the term knowledge. 1. It may denote the de facto presence in experience of a discriminate or outstanding quale or content. Some degree of distinction is necessary to any experienced thing, and such determinateness in experience one may agree to call knowledge. This sort of thing can hardly be referred to as transcendent, for what does it transcend? Not the things of other experiences, for it is the things of all experiences. It is a name for them in their determinate character. If transcendence refers to the relationships between such things, and things not at all determinately present in experience, then it has an intelligible meaning, but appears to involve a theory of the existence of reals apart from experience, or to be non-empirical. And transcendence, as a relationship of that which is in experience to out-of-experience things, would certainly make wholly meaningless any statement as to whether knowledge does or does not modify the out-of-experience. Such a statement can have intelligible meaning only when said of the things of knowledge in contrast and connection with other experienced things. Knowledge, in this sense, apart from the question of the appropriateness of the term, does not seem then to be anything more than a restatement of the postulate of immediate empiricism, that things are that which they are experienced to be recognizing that some sort of distinctiveness is necessary to anything. All things, truth and error, the obscure and the clear, the practical, the logical, the aesthetic, are thus present, and all equally real, though not equally valuable and valid. 2. Reference as a contemporaneous empirical trait is not an inevitable accompaniment of presence as just defined. The quale or content which discriminates a thing may not be referred explicitly to any other, nor any other to it. Connection may exist, however, practically. One thing may be found subsequently to affect 
influence or control, favorably or unfavorably, the quality of some other present thing. Reference as an empirical fact is then established. That is, becomes a discriminate element in the constitution of something which is complex. Hence, a second sense of knowledge. It is the experience in which the nature of such reference is investigated and defined. This involves such transformation of the character of antecedent things as makes possible the ascription to them and the maintenance by them of the relevant references. Recognizing that practical bearing or influence becomes explicit as reference in case of conflicting and therefore uncertain and contradictory bearings, and we get knowledge as Woodbridge has defined it when he says, it is of such a sort that it enables us to tell what the others actually are when we ask the question about their sort. The practical conflict of experiences in bringing to light the problem of their reference also brings to light the question of their nature as fitted to sustain such and such a reference. It makes their old character suspicious, doubtful, precarious, in a word, problematic. This inherent dissentience is always, as to its terminus ad quim, a movement of inquiry, of institution or definition. This constitutes an answering or telling experience in which an unquestioned thing replaces the dubious thing. Hence, while it would not do to say that the statement quoted above is an innocuous truism, there are too many subjectivistic theories of knowledge abroad to render its realistic implication other than important. It may do to say that its excellence lies in the fact that it identifies knowledge as a doubt, inquiry, answer, experience. When Woodbridge adds to what was last quoted, the question may not be asked and may not be answered. In that case, no one sort of experience is identified or distinguished. And what sort of an experience would that be if not precisely what we should mean by an unconscious experience? Page 576. There appears to be a relapse to the first sense of knowledge set forth. It is one thing to say that distinctive character is necessary to any experience in order not to fall into the contradiction of an unconscious experience. It is another thing to say that that kind of identification and distinction, namely of reference, which follows from express questioning and constitutes express answering, is necessary to a conscious experience. Only of the first sense of knowledge can the contradiction be relevant. Only of the second sense is the reference to question and answer relevant. Bearing these things in mind, I do not appreciate the difficulty in the statement that reality is most fittingly defined as true because defined in a way which most usefully meets the needs that raise the demand for definition. Page 574. The needs, however, do not raise the demand. They are the demand. For the needs and their useful meeting are neither of them extrinsic to the situation. The needs are the unstable, dissentient characters constituting an intolerable condition, while usefully is the meaning of this demand, that is, their transformation into a stable, dependable state of affairs. Needs are not met more or less usefully. They are met more or less successfully, and the successful fulfillment defines the useful thing of the situation. There is no other measure of use. I am convinced that the charges of subjectivism and of an arbitrarily utilitarian practicalism brought against current empiricism are due to the fact that the critic, because he himself retains a belief in the independent existence 
of a subject, ego, consciousness, or whatever, external to the subject matters, ascribe similar beliefs to the one criticized, and hence suppose that the latter, when he talks about genesis in needs, an outcome in success or fulfillment, is talking about something resident in a subject or consciousness, which arbitrarily pounces in, picks out its plum, and withdraws triumphant. But to the thoroughgoing empiricist, the self, the ego, consciousness, needs, and utility are all alike interpreted in terms of functions, contexts, or contents in and of the things experienced. 3. The empiricist of the immediate type will prefer to use the term knowledge experience or cognitional experience concerning the sort just described. For here, things are contemporaneously experienced as known things. It is now and here that they have knownness as one of their discriminate properties, just as they may have that of hardness or unpleasantness or monetary value. But knowledge is also used to denote the function or result of the doubt, inquiry, answer, experience in its outcome of critically assured presence with respect to further experiences. By the nature of the case, the sentiency of conflicting things reaches an end when the nature of reference is defined and the character of things altered so that they may sustain such reference. Hence, when Woodbridge says, page 575, in cognitive experience, all other sorts may exist without alteration. He says something which seems obviously false if said of knowledge in the second sense discussed, since transformation is the salient trait of its things, but ideally true of knowledge in this third sense. That is, the precise and defining aim of knowledge in the second sense is to secure things which are permanent or stable objects of reference, which may be persistently employed without thereby introducing further conflicts. Unalterability means precisely capacity to enter into further things as secured points of regard, established contents and quails, guaranteed methods. Footnote. Knowledge might thus be roughly defined as the function of economically or efficiently securing increasing complexity in experienced things. End footnote. We are thus enabled to give a precise statement of the relationship of the knowledge experience to alteration and to validity. In its second sense, knowledge arises because of the inherent discrepancy and consequent alteration of things. But it gives that alteration a particular turn which it would not take without knowledge. It directs alteration towards a result of security and stability. Hence, it is because knowledge is an experience. In organic connections of genesis and destiny with other experiences, that the validity of knowledge or truth has an assignable meaning. Because it is an affair of meeting the concrete demands of things, the demand of dissentient things for consensus, harmony, through defining reference and through redefining things which sustain the reference in question. Validity or invalidity is a trait or property of facts which may be empirically investigated and instituted. But validity is not definable or measurable in terms of the knowledge content if isolated, but only of the function of the knowledge experience in subsequent experiences. So, knowledge tells us the nature of the real when it is most fittingly and appropriately defined, because it is only when a real is ambiguous and discrepant that it needs definition. Its peculiar fitness is functional, relative and empirical, not absolutistic and transcendental. Yet we may admit a certain empirical transcendence. 
the outcome of the doubt inquiry answer experience literally goes beyond the state of suspense and dissentience out of which it originates so far as the knowledge experience fulfills its function it permanently transcends its own originating conditions it puts certain things out of doubt rendering them reliable economical and fruitful constituents in other more complex things this transcendence is the very essence of the pragmatic empiricist account of truth end of the knowledge experience and its relationships by john dewey